Welcome to the Hogan Mystique, the Ben Hogan Foundation podcast. We're here today with uh, Evan Harrell, who is a senior editor at Harvard Business Review, former correspondent for Time Magazine, and more importantly, my friend. Uh, Evan, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Jed. And Josie is uh, manning the twisting and tweaking machine today, trying to make it sound good, uh, which is hard to do sometimes. But um, so I'm going to ask her icebreaker question, which is, what keeps you up at night? Well, Judd, I, th I think you know the answer to that one because you know me pretty well and you know the arc of my career. But uh, what keeps me up at night is I worry uh, about humanity's ability to navigate the nuclear age and specifically the threat posed by uh, nuclear weapons, which I feel that in general we tend to overlook and underappreciate. Well, you know, it's it's funny. We had a... Um... A board member of ours on a podcast um, a couple of weeks ago, and he um, was not on for this reason, but we asked him the same question, and he he his answer is roughly the same. I think it was kind of uh, more or less he's worried about kind of the state of our union with or state of our world with uh, problems in Ukraine, and so I do think that's on the top of everybody's, everybody's mind right now. But I know that you have a much deeper connection to that than most, and I do want to talk about that. Um, but I'm going to start off with kind of you, and then we're going to talk about some other stuff, and then we're going to bring the whole room down at the end and kind of talk about the nuclear disarmament problem <laughs> Great. and some Can't other wait. things. So um, if, if you if you if you're listening and you really want to um, wind yourself up in a good mood and then wind it back down, just stay tuned for us. so. <laughs> um, so Evan, you were born in Manhattan, uh, New York City, correct? That is correct. Yeah. So what's it like as a young boy uh, growing up in New York City? Yeah, I mean, um, I think it was kind of a special time uh, to be there. Um, uh, you know, it was sort of 1980 to 86. Uh, you seen that movie, The Squid and the Whale. Um, that was kind of my my jam. The Mets won the World Series in 1986. The Giants won the Super Bowl uh, that same year, 87, I guess. Um, so it was great to be a New York sports fan. And um, it was a happy, happy time for me, happy, happy memories. Um, uh, we lived in a small apartment. My dad's career was taking off. My parents' marriage was happy. Uh, you know, they ended up divorcing um, later in my life. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I'd say that I was I was kind of blessed to have a very you know rich and happy uh, upbringing um, in in Manhattan. I think I'm probably glad that I left, uh, um, but uh, it was it was you know it was terrific to have had that early childhood experience there. Yeah, and your dad was a cellist. That's right. My dad was uh, one of the sort of preeminent classical musicians of his era. Um, he has a story, um, I suppose, with parallels to Mr. Hogan. Um, he was a uh, son of musicians, um, but orphaned at a, at a young age. Um, uh, his dad died of cancer and then his mother died in a car accident uh, shortly thereafter. And he basically turned to the cello and um, became obsessive uh, with the cello, practiced hours and hours and hours. And um, uh, sort of through, I think he was, I th you know, I think to, to reach the top of any profession, you have to have talent, but, um, he, he had that sort of ability to, to, you know, to lock himself away. Even when I was a kid, I remember dad would disappear in his practice room for seven, eight hours. And I just hear him practicing, you know, sometimes the same passage over and over and over again. And, um, one of his sort of adages, uh, in life, um, that I think is kind of a hallmark of any sort of, uh, exceptional, um person is you know there are no shortcuts and uh that was something that you know it's funny because when you're you know my dad passed uh early in the first wave of covid and 
you know, I've had some time now and, you know, I, you look at, you, you kind of have a chance to sort of reflect and I, you know, he, he was, he was a flawed person. A lot of high achieving individuals are particularly, you know, people who are de dedicated to things like um, music or physics or whatever, you know, often they're kind of stunted in other ways, but in some ways he was so exceptional and such a better man than me um, and his work ethic and uh, uh, his love of his craft um, is something that I admire so much. Uh, if you'll just indulge me with one one quick story about that, I remember asking him. He was starting to suffer some health problems late in life, um, and he was talking about stopping touring and stopping playing uh, the cello. And I I said, well, what are you going to do when you retire? Um, and without blinking, without any irony, he said, practice the cello. Um, <laughs> right. He just loved it. Yeah, he loved it. Well, and I I think you're right that that reminds me so much of the stories you hear about Mr. Hogan, and not only just from the perfectionist and you know, people talk about here, the people that are here at Shady Oak still that knew him, a lot of them did not know him when he was playing professionally, but they know him still, even after his professional career, to still be out there grinding on the range or grinding on the little nine as he did. And I always think that, you know, um, it, it shows you that those people aren't faking it. You know, they're not out there for the, he, your dad wasn't doing it for the money. Mr. Hogan wasn't doing it for the money. They were doing it because something they were chasing something and it's probably perfection that they're never going to catch but they knew it's worth the chase but the other thing um and you know i've talked about this some is your dad's um kind of upbringing with being orphaned at an early age is, is not unlike mr hogan who his dad died in early age um at his uh, when mr hogan was nine and i i, I wonder too that, that you know there's hard times you go through where you were kind of more or less left alone in the world to fend for yourself and Mr. Hogan still has mom, but you know, she was having a hard time raising kids. And so he had to become a man early. Um, I, I, I often um, think about how hard that must've been, but also how that um, kind of drives you and, and creates a, a, a more serious um, man. And, and, and you don't have a time, you don't have time to, for the frivolities of life, you, you um, kind of chase things earlier and you keep on that path. Absolutely. I mean, there's this, you know, William James, as American kind of writer and philosopher, has this idea of twice-born personalities. And mm -hmm. This idea that, you know, uh, greatness gets born of trauma, essentially, um, and and people that are born twice, once at birth and once through some traumatic event, um, usually usually are the ones that go on for greatness. It was certainly true for for my father, um, for sure. Uh, um, and you know, no one would ever wish any anything like being orphaned on anyone or um, uh, what Mr. Hogan went through. Uh, um, but it does, as you say, it does seem to sort of, in many cases, um, yeah, uh, I guess the cheesy yogi expression would be, you know, what the caterpillar calls in the world, the wise man calls the butterfly or something like that through mm -hmm. these traumatic events gets born something even more impressive. So certainly was the case for my dad. Um, yeah. 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 And I, I think that, um, you know, you can't avoid hard stuff in life, but it's how you react to it. But, um, you know, certainly people have these moments in, in early early life that are they're really hard but um i'm always impressed by the people that turn that into that butterfly so mm -hmm. so you're you live in new york city um what is that like you know for, for those of us that grew up in texas um what's it like to live around um people that you may not know all the time that because you know we have neighborhoods here where you know everybody around your street and that kind of thing but you may have people that live in your building that you don't really know and you run into on the elevator or on the stairs yeah i think um you know my mom was 
you say people you don't really know, but I mean, my mom was a journalist. Uh, um, she was uh, a, a correspondent for uh, the Guardian, and she did a column about living in New York. Guardian was a British newspaper, um, and and it got collected into a volume called America on Seven Volume a Day. <laughs> so, and her column was essentially about life on the Upper West Side in New York in the early 80s. So she kind of made it, she was like the most nosy neighbor busybody. <laughs> she made it her business to know everyone. Okay. And um, so I think I got, I think I got kind of, you know, very socialized very early um, and very comfortable. It was, you know, uh, you know, I think it kind of showed me that once you sort of, you know, you peel back the veil on people's lives and, and often, um, uh, you know, there's, uh, there's heartache there and there's, there's trauma there. People generally, ge generally want to be good to one another. And so, you know, I kind of grew up sort of believing that, uh, you know, if you gave people a chance, you find out that they were kind of softies underneath them. Uh, and so in that way, it was, uh, you know, it was, yeah, I, th I think that people think of like, oh, kids that grow up in New York, they grow up hard, right? Because everyone's like, you know, hey, I'm walking here, you know, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> that was not my experience um, at all. Uh, my experience was that, uh, you know, the, even the sort of the cantankerous New Yorkers uh, underneath it all were kind of were kind of good, good souls. Yeah. And I, you know, I only spent four years up there and three of them were with you, I guess. But I, I feel like that um, I always felt um, welcome to New York, even though they knew I was probably some hillbilly from Texas. But um, just because people accepted people as a human and it, and the differences, because there are so many differences up there. It's just it's it's not the same as it here where those differences stand out like a sore thumb sometimes. And I don't mean to beat up on Texas, but but I do think that there is um, uh, I, I agree with you that I, I never found that kind of hard, hard nosed nature up there. I felt like that there was a lot of bark, but not, not a whole lot of bite up there. Yeah, they so. get it paid, right. Like you got to know the rhythm of life, right? Like if yeah. you're if you're standing in the wrong place in the subway when the train gets out, they'll let you they'll give you an earful. Right. Like you got to sort of if you're not native, you will run into problems. Sure. Um, but it's they're superficial problems. They're like you know, hey, I'm walking here, not like, you know, you know, you're nothing sort of more sinister than that. Really, just kind of get out of my way. <laughs> yeah, I think it, I think about the the first time I ever drove into New York City. Um, it was my sophomore year in college, and I drove up to New York in my roommate's car to pick up something for my brother who still lived in, in Manhattan at the time, a table from his apartment to bring to my dorm room. And we, we went in through the Lincoln Tunnel, and there was a car that was going kind of slow in the right lane. So I just zipped over and passed him on the left and immediately got pulled over. And the cop pulled me over and said, you know, what in the blank are you doing? And I said, oh, I was just, he was going slow. He goes, have, have you ever heard that it's okay to change lanes in the tunnel? What happens if you have a wreck that stops down all of Manhattan? And it was a real eye-opener for me. And he let me go with just a warning, but I always think about like that guy must have gone back to the station that and I've been like, I ran into this idiot from Texas. So <laughs> Someone almost shut down Manhattan. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So um you grew up in how long did you live in New York? So we moved to LA when I was seven. My father uh got a teaching position at USC. Um and uh we were there till I was twelve. Uh and then um he got a, a another job. Um at the Royal Academy of Music, uh, as the principal of the Royal Academy of Music, which was a you know was a big title, um, it was probably unrealistic for him to take it, given that he was trying to keep a full touring schedule as a as a performer. Um, so it, you know he kind of didn't work out. He was only there for a few years, but we stayed in London. I, I finished my high schooling in London. Wow, what is that transition like? So you were twelve when you moved to London, well, and that's that's right. I have a twelve year old now, and so I'm thinking about him 
discovering girls, discovering what sports he really likes, finally making friends that I think he aren't just parent forced friends, meaning that, you know, he's actually picking his own friends now. Um, what is that like to move continents at that time? You're, you're moving literally, you know, 10,000 miles away from, from where you were. Yeah, I think the takeaway that I had was that kids are far more adaptable and resilient than we assume. Um, you know, I moved a lot growing up. Um, and then when I was at uh, school in London, I went to the American School in London, which has become, you know, crazy, uh, posh, expensive now. It's sort of the oligarchs kids school. But at the time, um, it was t tended to be the school where people whose parents were working for American companies for what they'd be stationed in London for a year or two that, and then cycled through, they would go there. So we had a third of our class turnover every year. So, you know, you think about that one out of every three kids that you're friends with is leaving after a year. And then you've got new kids coming through, um, which sounds, uh, you know, really difficult for a kid, but, um, you know, it's just, uh, we, you adapt. Um, and so, you know, people, when you ask me questions like that, I, you know, it's the same thing I get asked when I get asked, what's it like to be a twin? I have a twin sister, you know, I'm like, well, what's it like to not be a twin? I have no yeah. idea. It was just my reality and I adjusted to it. You know? Yeah. Um, so did you, uh, did you play golf when you moved to London or was that a new thing when you moved over there? No, I, um, uh, I didn't play golf. I was, uh, you know, I, I was a multi-sport guy. I, I was obsessed with all sports, um, growing up, uh, you know, the Mets and the Dodgers when we moved to LA. So I was into baseball and then football and basketball as I grew older um, and tennis too. Uh, my dad was a big tennis player. So I grew up playing tennis. Um, but oddly in 1986, before we even moved to the UK, when we were based in Los Angeles, my parents bought a house in a town called Arbroath, Scotland, um, yeah, which is right on the North Sea. Um, it's an old kind of, at the time it had sort of a vibrant fishing industry. But there's really like not a lot going on there, except it's in the middle of golf heaven. I mean, you're 15 minutes from the first tee at Carnoustie, you're 50 minutes from the first tee at the old course in St. Andrews, you're an hour from Royal Aberdeen. Then uh, there's just, there's a few dozen amazing courses within a few hour radius. My parents didn't play golf. It's just random coincidence that we bought a house there. I think my mom grew up by the seaside and she was sort of, she wanted to hear the sound of seagulls when she woke up in the morning. So they bought this little fisherman's hut. Um, we renovated it and we started going there. Um, and and uh, when we moved to London, we spent more time there. Um, and that's when I uh, I took up golf. There was a, I went to the Arbroath Artisan Golf Course. Um, uh, you know, it's there in the title, you know, th this was the course for artisans because there were other courses in the area that were for sort of the landed aristocrats, but this is where tradesmen could feel comfortable. Um, and, uh, the, 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 the golf pro there was, um, a golf pro called Lindsay Ewart, who I'm still in touch with. He caddied for me at the Cross Nest Tassie, which is a, a amateur tournament in Carnoustie that I've, I've played the last two years. Um, I still play competitively, uh, but he taught me how to play golf. And, you know, he, he was just this sort of, as is often the case where juniors are welcomed, it's usually just down to a particularly progressive or sort of visionary kind of pro who, you know, wants to grow the game and wants kids around the game. And, um, you know, he, he, he sought off a, a set of Hogan Apex twos and, um, you know, let me kind of uh, learn the game and run amok. And his, his assistants would be the ones that would usually be out there teaching me, mm -hmm. um, I don't know whether my parents didn't want to pay the full rate for the the head teaching professional or whether he just didn't like coaching juniors, whatever it was. But, um, you know, the story I like to tell is that one of his assistants uh, uh, is always cold there. Um, we're right. You know, it's kind of northeast Scotland, right on the North Sea, just a biting wind that comes off the North Sea. 
um, even when it's nice in other parts of Scotland, you get this thing called Har, which is like this freezing mist that comes off the North Sea. So it's, it's never nice there. And um, uh, he would come out in his little Ford Fiesta and drive behind me because, you know, there was no formal driving range. It was just a practice area. You shag your own balls. Mm -hmm. um, and he'd sit there with the heat cranked in his Ford Fiesta and then just kind of shout instruction at me out of the window. He'd roll down. It was kind of, you know, it was before electric windows, right? So you'd hear like, ee, ee. <laughs> you know his head would pop out he go, didn't move your head you know stuff like that and um uh that's how i learned golf is being shouted at by a mad scotsman from a heated ford fiesta on a practice facility which actually now that i think about it, it's a really romantic way i mean no wonder i fell yeah. in love with golf yeah. can you think of a more romantic way to learn how to play golf that was incredible no you're like yeah. bagger vance that's a, that's <laughs> totally a, yeah, that's yeah. amazing yeah uh, um well i, I i'm always um uh preaching about the the importance of those kind of head pros, like you talked about, that appreciate the the um, importance of having kids. Um, you know, you don't have to have um, real formal junior programs, but just the ability for them to get out and experience the game a little bit and learn the lessons and and get out and learn about what it means to call a penalty on yourself and keep your own score and and have some have some integrity. And th those are things that at the foundation we try to preach all the time about that Mr. Hogan stood for. But, um, I, you know, I, I don't know where your life would be. I, I'm sure you'd be great. You're a smart guy. But just without uh, that that head pro and, and, and his um, willingness to let you kind of learn the game where you would have gone without golf. So, yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, we would we would go over to Aspen for a few weeks because there was a classical music festival there and there was a great junior program. And, you know, the the local course, they, they, they basically open it to you get a junior pass for 100 bucks and get to play as much as you want. Um, there might not even have been any time restrictions back then. You know, it wasn't like after 3 p.m. on a Wednesday or whatever. It was whenever you wanted to go. And I think that, you know, um, what I say about junior programs is that I feel like clubs are resistant until they get them and then they love them, you mm -hmm. know. Um, and the other thing that I, I'll, I'll tell people is that, uh, you know, if you, if you want to learn about the mental side of the game, watch like a really talented junior, mm -hmm. you know. Like they do all that stuff instinctively, like mm -hmm. their pre-shot routine, mm -hmm. like the, the the fact that like when they hit a bad one, they're just like excited to go play the next one. You know, their little like sort of goldfish memories. Uh, you can learn a lot from watching like talented kids play golf. Um, yeah. uh, and so, you know, I think it's all good having, you know, kid, and you know, of course, it's grow the games, future of the game. And um, but I think it's all good having kids around golf courses. I, yeah. I wish more clubs did it. You know, I, my my dad used to always talk about how. Um, um, when I would be in a bad way and go on the golf course, he'd say, you know, just play, play like you're six again, you know, and that meant hit driver until, you know, you're close enough not to hit driver anymore. And just, and it's kind of what these guys, these decade guys are, you know, Scott Fawcett, who we both know, and, um, some of these other guys that, um, uh, that, that talk about core strategy talk about is kids. I think it's, I think you're right. Kids instinctively know the percentages. They know that, the whole idea is to get the ball in the hole. So let's get it up there as close as we can. I, I remember the, 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 this is not a podcast about my golf career, but my first tournament I won, uh, the city junior flight I won, uh, it was a match play deal. And the last, I was down to the last hole with a guy and I hit it up on the green and it putted it off the green into this tall rough. And nobody ever told me I was six. Nobody told me that you, once you're off on the green, uh, you, you, I thought you had to keep using your putter until the ball was in the hole. And so I got, I, waded off into the deep rough and took this big swing at it and hold it from the rough <laughs> for the putter. And my dad always reminded me that even to this day, or even 
till um, he passed, he always would tell me like, just remember that time you hold it from from U.S. Open rough to win a match with, with a putter. With a putter, uh, because to him that was just like instinctive golf, and yeah. that's kind of what he believed in was, listen, you know how to play this game. Stop overthinking this kind of thing. Yeah. So yeah, um, and I think that when you learn in a field like you did, rather than you know, I think we get too caught up now in hitting the targets and, and the, the track mans and all that kind of stuff. And we talk a lot about this. We've talked about it with John Peterson on the podcast is I worry about the, 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 uh, the youth of competitive golf uh, getting too locked into my swing speed, my ball speed, my spin rate and all this kind of stuff. And like, dude, just go get it in the hole. You know, that's that. that so. Yeah. Maybe I guess, I guess I'm not as worried because I feel like whatever you grow up with as a kid, like you're, you know, that, that natural sort of like, your natural kind of imagination and learning aptitude will sort of, so the fact that, you know, it's a little bit like, I mean, kids are learning to grow up alongside these technological um, uh, things that augment their, their game, like, you know, track man and uh, course management tools like decade and, and stuff like that. And so I think they will be, you know, they'll, they'll be very facile with them. Like for me, it's, it's, it's been tricky to make that adjustment, you know, in middle age um, uh, because it's, you know, um, I just don't learn the same way. Right. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, I know now that, you know, playing good golf is about bogey avoidance, not making birdies. So all I can see on a hole is bogeys. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, right. Don't hit it there. Don't hit it there. Don't hit it there. Don't. That's not how a kid thinks. Right. Right. So um, I, I think they'll be fine because, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll learn how to augment their, you know, with, with technology, just like kids were fine with calculators and all that kind of stuff. Um, they're just going to be, you know, they're going to get so, so good. That's, that's, that's what I think is going to happen. Yeah. It's like, um, these kids coming through are going to be so good. But we can make a deal that I can still tell them, you know, in my day, oh, and I can still yell at them to get off my lawn. Maybe we can do that, right? <laughs> well, no, I mean, uh, you know, you've got a you've got a son who plays golf. I'm sure you're gonna, I'm sure you're gonna want him to know his numbers and all that sort of stuff. Um, but you're gonna make sure that you know he learns on the course too, right? So, um, I think the best ones will have a balance for sure. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, growing up. In Carnoustie, now you belong at Panmure, uh, which is right next to Carnoustie, um, and famously in our world known as uh, where Mr. Hogan practiced for that famous 1953 Open uh, at Carnoustie. And then, um, and you told me walking in here that you are now uh, have playing privileges or are a member at Carnoustie as well. So you've kind of got the Hogan slam here. Um, you're doing a podcast from Shady Oaks' home club, and then and then you you belong at two of his two of his haunts over in Scotland. So um tell me about the the legacy that he has left over in, in scotland yeah i mean so i you know i i i'll finish my round and i'll have tea and toast at Pamir in the hogan room you know and um uh the members still talk about the hogan bunker um oh you're in you know because you know how all the bunkers that many scottish courses have names famously the old course every bunker has names and it's kind of you know the most experienced caddies will will pretend they know all of them um mm -hmm. uh you, know, you probably don't want to like actually look at the card when you ask them because they're making up half the names but um yeah so the the, the sixth which is the hole that he practiced the most which is already really really hard now to add insult to injury has a bunker you know, right in a collection area in the kind of like layup spot in front of the green. Oh. So he's made a hard hole even harder. Um, and the fact that he's still viewed affectionately, despite all the like the the, the blow ups that have happened in the Hogan bunker, I think is kind of, you know, that alone is testament to his legacy. Um, it, it, you know, it's 70 years now. Um, I, I don't when I first started learning golf there, people still talked about it. Right. I mean, and they still do. So 
you know, I don't know if you've seen this footage of Brian Cox. He's the actor who has played the patriarch in the TV series Secession. Um, he, he was on a late night talk show uh, and he was talking about the experience of growing up in Dundee, which is the city near Carnoustie. It's the nearest city. It's also the city near St. Andrews. Um, and he he was at the 53 Open and he still remembers it vividly. Um, and, and, you know, it's kind of one of those things, right, where it's like game game six of the 86 series with the Mets, like, you know, there was, if you ask, there's 2 million people at that game, right? It's the same with that 53 open. Everyone in Carnoustie's relative was at that game or they were at that game if they were old or they were at that final round if they were old enough. Uh, but it's still very much alive um, uh, there, even to this day. I mean, they're all kind of dying out, um, uh, the people that remember it, but those who do, you know, they still speak misty-eyed about it. It's, yeah. it's kind of cool. What is it about a... a, a um smaller man in texas i mean smaller in stature they grabbed a whole nation in scotland um well you know and certainly um worldwide but certainly in that area of of the world for one visit and one victory uh in a hundred and something open championships what do you think it is that grabbed people about hogan over there so i mean i have the kind of prosaic answer and i have the romantic answer that sort of my theory I mean, the prosaic answer is that um, he was already, you know, he had this already this heroic story about overcoming, um, you know, he was a, he was a celebrity. He had this, uh, you know, adversity story. Uh, um, he handled himself with grace while he was there. I mean, at Pamir, he's remembered because uh, he, you know, as a sort of a celebrity, he was invited into the um, clubhouse to have uh, meals with the members. And out of solidarity with the PGA professional um, who wasn't allowed in the clubhouse because until very recently, you know, professionals were viewed as tradesmen and craftsmen and they weren't allowed in the clubhouse with the members. Out of solidarity with the professional, he said, no, I'll, I'll, you know, he wasn't rude. He just said, I'll take my meals in the kitchen with the, the PGA professional. He handled himself with humility and grace and all the things that, you know, we come. To. So that's the, that's the prosaic answer. Um, uh, the romantic answer is that uh, the Scots are under no illusion that life isn't difficult, right? Like they live in this climate where it's essentially dark for 20 hours a day in the winter. Um, uh, it's very, very rare that you get sunny days. Uh, you'll get a few weeks of berries in the summer, but other than that, it's kind of root vegetables and their own concoctions like haggis, etc. cetera. Um, uh, and I think that there is something about his, his story of adversity, um, and his uh, sort of, yeah, almost kind of uh, intense sort of, let's call it kind of Calvinist kind of work ethic that sort of spoke to the the Scots. Um, and they kind of, he was also, you know, you say he was small in stature, but most Scots are small in stature, right? They're wee jocks. That's how the English used to refer to them when they would fight together in wars. Uh, and and so, uh, you know, he was the wee iceman. Mm -hmm. you know, so you know, the fact that he was kind of of their stature and sort of still larger than life. Um, but yeah, I sort of, I, I, the romantic answer is that I think that they saw in him reflected their own experience, which is, which was one of um, adversity and hardship. And, you know, um, that area was very much reliant on the sea. You know, their men would go out in boats, famously the North Sea, you know, and some wouldn't come back and, uh, you know, they were, they had a good catch. They would, they would, they would be, you know, they would have food on the table. If not, you know, it was potatoes and, uh, and crusty bread. So, um, yeah, it was, uh, you know, when I was, when I was living in Edinburgh, there was still pockets of Glasgow where male life expectancy was in the early fifties. This was only wow. like, um, this was in the mid 2000s, famously, like, 
you know, the life expectancy was was lower in parts of Glasgow than it was at the time in Basra, at the height of the Iraq invasion going wrong. Wow. Um, so, you know, life isn't always easy for Scots. And I think that maybe that that's my romantic answer as to why this champion um, particularly resonated with them. But that might be totally fanciful. I'm not sure. No, I think I mean, that that makes complete sense to me. Just I feel like that people like people they can relate to. And um, and I think that, um, you know, in a sport of golf that you have that kind of this um, elitist reputation for a guy that came from basically nothing. You know, he 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 basically was introduced to golf because he had to caddy to earn money because his dad died in early age. Um, and not to say that he didn't have some breaks along the way meeting Marvin Leonard, who founded Colonial and Shady Oaks and was basically his benefactor for, for his early part of his career. But, um, but to have that upbringing and then the car wreck and to come back from that um, and just how he lived his life, which was a life of dedication and grit. And that, that speaks to me to a um, um, somebody that probably, they can relate well to that, that, um, you know, that's not somebody that grew up in Beverly Hills, you know? So, no, um, no, I, I agree. And, um, I'll add one more thing, which is that in Carnoustie, everyone golfs. Yeah. It's a bit like St. Andrews, right? Like you'll see like the Baker closing their shop with like clubs on their shoulder and walking to the first tee, right? Like it's a public links. It's owned by the town. Everyone golfs and they know how hard that golf course is and they can appreciate, I mean, all the pros to this day say there's no crowd like a British Open, mm -hmm. Open Championship crowd in terms of their knowledge of the game and their appreciation for good golf shots. So, you know, Hogan picking apart Carnoustie to win, um, that must have been pretty special for 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 the townsfolk who you know who know how hard that course is. Yeah, that yeah, yeah. I, you know, I've never been over there, um, and um, I, I I hope to go there someday with you and and play. But I the two things I remember about Carnoustie are you know the sixth hole, you know the the famous Hogan's Alley hole, and then um, John Vandeveld, right and. And unfortunately for Mr. Vanderveld, that that really still rings true. But I remember hearing, you know, that's Carnasty, right? And how hard that place is. And um, Mr. Hogan played in one open and he won it. And I, I can't really, I, as, as cool as I think St. Andrews is, I can't think of a more uh, emblematic place for him to win than Carnoustie, just because that kind of, in my mind, represents kind of who he is and what he was as a golfer. Yeah, I mean, he worked, you know, you could, you know, I'm going to get misty eye talking about it, but you know, everything that he worked his life for kind of came to fruition. I mean, you have to, you have to ball strike it around that place. Um, and it was the ultimate kind of question asked of his game. And he, you know, in this one appearance, he rose to the occasion. It's, it's, it, you know, and it, it, as I said to you, I didn't, you know, I didn't quite realize that he was a part-time player. Mm -hmm. I mean, what'd you tell me? He played six tournaments that year in 53? He did. One, one five, five of them. them. Right. I mean, that's essentially like just kind of, you know, showing up every once in a while to, to mix it up with the boys. Like, and, you know, the fact that he was that good, that he could dominate. Um, it's so cool. It's just, yeah. it's just a, one of the, one of the great sports stories that his, his win at Carnoustie. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, let's get into your career a little bit. Um, I, I always, I, I, I'm always fascinated by reporters, uh, just because I think I'm naturally curious about people. And I think to be a reporter, you have to be naturally curious about people in the world. And that's probably why you and I, along so well just because i think we're probably curious about each other although there's nothing to be curious about with me but that's not but, but you're certainly um uh i'm fascinated by your story so um your mom was a reporter did you 
you think you kind of gathered that bug from her? I mean, I, I guess I don't, I didn't see you bring a cello in here. So I guess you learned from her uh, more than uh, your dad in some respects. Yeah. 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 Um, no, I, I think I'm, yeah, I think I'll, uh, the, the day I used to play the cello. Um, uh, I did until I was 12. Um, but I, I was just, I was just crazy for ball sports, you mm -hmm. know, and I, and, you know, the, I tell the story, the moment my dad put up a hoop in the backyard, that was the end of my cello. Career, right? <laughs> so um, it was just quite obvious where my where my interests lay. Uh, you know, I, I kind of backed into journalism. I, I went to Princeton, um, you know, because the Woodrow Wilson School, it was there or Georgetown for the School of Foreign Service. I wanted to be a diplomat. You know, I had this kind of um, international experience, um, you know, uh, dual national um uh, it was kind of an interesting period, uh, post Cold War, all that sort of stuff, and um, and then you know I found that I just really, really, really liked reading books, which I, I you know um, I, I started with discovering in um, high school, uh, so I became an English major, um, and then you, when you graduate as an English major, um, you know there, there's not many options really, um, and so I kind of went to that you know, journalism has been called the great refuge for the vaguely talented. And I think that like, I fell like steadily, like I felt sturdily into that bucket. And so, you know, I was able essentially on the back of my Princeton degree to get an internship. I didn't do any journalism at Princeton. I mean, Princeton is a feeder to like the New Yorker and Time Magazine because they have John McPhee, who's this famous writer who taught his writing course and half of, you know, Time Inc. and the New Yorker basically took that writing course. I never did. Um, people always assume I did. So I, I don't sort of, yeah, I, I don't, you know, I don't correct that often. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so so I it, I, it was kind of, I kind of backed into it and found myself following in my mother's footsteps, which was um, kind of interesting because I never really talked to her about it. And then I remember one of the first kind of news stories I had to do as an intern at the Aspen Times, I literally like called her and I was like, mom, how do I do this? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and she's like, okay, there's this thing called the reverse pyramid, right? So you need a lead. And she like talked me through how to write like a news story. Um, uh, and so uh, it kind, kind of by accident, you know, I, I think that I wanted separation from both my parents. They were both high achievers in their field and I wanted my own identity. And then, you know, you kind of, you kind of wander and realize that, you know, your, your calling is all along close to home. So yeah, I, I, um, I took to it immediately. I loved it. I loved um I loved writing. I loved reporting. I loved being out in the field. Um, I loved, you know, I love the access to information that, you know, I love kind of being the first to know. Uh, and it, it just sort of, it, it stuck for me. It was a great first career. Unfortunately, the whole thing kind of fell apart. Um, so that was, that was kind of a traumatic experience for me, sort of, you know, striving and getting to like kind of the top of my professional and to have the sort of floor taken out from under me. Um, but I've, you know, I've kind of reinvented myself a little bit and, uh, found found a home for the time being anyway. So um, it worked out, but uh, it was, you know, looking back on it, you know, it was, I wish I hadn't picked a career that was in an industry that was about to be disrupted so dramatically. Yeah. So we'll talk about that in a second with, with the floor coming out from under you. But so when, when that floor is still under you, um, your, your first job is an Aspen as a reporter. Um, and uh, what, what what was your day to day there? What, what did you know? What did you cover? I guess in Aspen, a town like that, you kind of cover everything, correct? Well, yeah. I mean, I covered everything from like should there be should they raise the price of parking on Main Street to 
you know, interviewing Madeleine Albright because she was speaking at the Aspen Institute, right? Yeah. Like Aspen really punches above its weight. It was a great place to be yeah. a reporter. It didn't pay a living wage. So, I mean, I was, I was looping, you know, two rounds a day at the country club on the weekends to, you know, for beer money. Um, but in terms of experience and the great thing about journalism, right, is that, you know, you, you, you're as good as your clips. So you can build a portfolio and it allowed me to build a portfolio with, uh, you know, with things like, um, you know, interviewing people coming through for, through from the Institute. Uh, you know, my big break was I was, I was on night shift. I had like the graveyard shift and, um, when Hunter Thompson killed himself in Aspen and, uh, I was kind of the first reporter on the scene and, um, broke the story because the, he was friends with the sheriff. Uh, he famously ran for sheriff in Pickens County. And so they were kind of trying to keep it under wraps. Um, but it was quite obvious when I arrived at his house, uh, we got calls coming in over the radio that there had been gunshots at Hunter's house and my night editor, it was actually my night editor. Um, uh, he said, you should go out and check this out. It doesn't smell right to me. And I was like, Hunter's always shooting guns at his house. Like what, like this is, uh, you know, I don't, I don't need to waste my time driving out there. It was snowy. It was cold. He's like, just, just, just head out there. I, I, I got a feeling something's off. And as soon as I got there, I was like, Oh, something's bad's happened. So um yeah that was my big break in fact wow. was was his suicide um which is an unfortunate way to get get your break but that's often how it works in journalism right yeah you know, if it bleeds it leads so well you and you got to uh cover the stories that present themselves right so exactly yeah. um so you mentioned something a minute ago about how you caddied to kind of make ends meet there um how does caddying help with that journalism career because uh, you know I, I always think a caddy is like sometimes i love a caddy to sit there and talk to me about I never really want them to talk to me about golf because uh, most of the time, you know, it's it's um, either they or I don't know what we're talking about. But um, I do sometimes I like for them to talk and I like to learn what they're about. And we talk about life and the world and that kind of thing. Sometimes you just want them to shut up. And that's usually when you're not playing well. But I think that's probably kind of life as a journalist, too. Is sometimes you got to know when to talk and when to ask questions. And sometimes you got to know when just to hand them the club. Right. Absolutely. I think that's a good point. I think I probably was kind of learning on the job, both jobs. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I smile when you talk about caddies because uh, for our listeners, uh, you know, my pal Judd here is like an incredibly intuitive, but also very fast golfer. And we played in a four ball qualifier together. And I set him up with a caddy because we weren't going to get a practice round. Um, and I knew a member at the club. And I think on the second hole, the caddy was like, uh, sort of talking to Judd with his focus on the green. And he was talking him through the shot and stuff like that. And Judd hits in the middle of the thing, in the middle of this cat, poor caddy sentence. He goes, oh, oh, there it goes then. Okay, then, you know, and that was it. And he learned that if he was going to give Judd information, he better get it done in like five seconds right before he's even pulled the club because otherwise the ball's in the air. Uh, so that, you know, yeah, you learn, you learn to pace yourself based on the, the, the pace of your player. You learn, um, uh, what information they want, uh, when to hold back information. I suppose there was all good skills for interviewers as well, right? Yes, yeah, so, I think so. Yeah. So, um, I'm, I'm still learning how to caddy, still learning how to interview. So I'll learn those <laughs> lessons. I'm 20 years behind you. Um, so from there you go, uh, from Aspen. So how long do you, from, for Hunter S. Thompson's suicide, how how where does your career go from there? I, I wanted to go back to Scotland. Okay. Um, uh... Thank you for listening to Hogan Mystique, the podcast of the Ben Hogan Foundation. We hope you're enjoying this episode. But before we get back to the conversation, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsors. Thank you to Heim Barbecue. They have three locations, two in Fort Worth, one in Dallas. It's the original home of the Bacon Burn Ends. Heim's Farm to Smoker Barbecue is a must-do for Fort Worthians and tourists alike. 
Thank you to Travis, Emma, and the entire Heim team for the great barbecue, but also for their support of the Ben Hogan Foundation mission to help young people. Go to heimbbq.com for more information. Thanks, Heim. Thanks again to our sponsors for today's podcast. Let's get back to the conversation. I did a year at St. Andrews after Princeton. I did a master's there yep. um, and fell in love with it. Um, and I wanted to, I've made friends and I wanted to go back. How often do you get to play the old course when you're up there? Um, I got to play it a lot. Yeah. Um, you know, I played on the university golf club, uh, played for the second team. Mostly I played a few matches for the first team, but we played most of our matches on the new or the jube Jubilee course. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, uh, you know, and then you'd have practice on those courses as well. Mm-hmm. Weirdly, if I hadn't played any competitive golf there, I would have played more rounds at the old course. Okay. Um, but it was the beginning of my education at the old course, um, for sure. Uh, I'm smiling because I know there's a listener out there who's going to remind me that uh, towards the end of my towards the end of my stay at St. Andrews, I had my Lynx ticket confiscated. No, yeah, because I, um, I, you know, this was very common practice. Students would basically, when they'd have like a friend or a relative in town, they'd just give them their Lynx ticket and say, "Oh, just go down and show them this, and off you go on the old course." Oh. And they decided to like basically crack down, like. And I didn't know this. They 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 got wind. So I was made an example of essentially. Um, not that this is. Uh, I I I have huge regret, and I'm atoning to this day. Uh, but um, it was just bad timing. So at the end of my at the end of my stay at St Andrews, I was exiled to the Duke's course, um, where they had a deal for students. Uh, so I played this American style golf course with like rather glumly for like the last few weeks of my stay at St Andrews. Um, uh, but yeah, that, that started a love affair with the old course that continues. I, I just played it, um, last week, uh, and that, that, that course seeps into your soul. So, yeah. I, you know, and it takes a lot of times out there to, to sort of get to kind of appreciate it. First, first 20 times you play it, you're just confused, um, especially without a caddy. And as a student, you'd never take a caddy. So, yeah. uh, so yeah, so, um, I played it a lot. It was a, so I had done that year at St. Andrews and I wanted to get back, um, and so um, uh, I started writing letters to the editor of the Scotsman newspaper. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I actually, I also I got a reference from someone who knew him, um, who's still a friend to this day. He, he, he basically gave me a three-month contract and said, you know, come over here, show us what you can do for three months, and we'll see if we can keep you. And, after, you know, I made a success of it, but when I first got over there, you know, he, 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 he told me, he was like, I was just so confused as to why I was getting these letters from a reporter in Colorado to work for the Scotsman that I thought I have to see what this is about. Uh, that, so that's the reason I hired you. So I went over there and I worked for two years for the Scotsman newspaper. And my job was essentially, uh, I would take, I was a junior reporter. I would take uh, stories from the English newspapers and my job was to put a kilt on it. Uh, so what that <laughs> meant was to find the Scottish angle. So like, let's say there'd be like a, a recall of pacemakers you know, 12,000 Scots face sudden death after pacemaker re- recalled, right? And like my my contribution to that story was just finding out how many Scots actually had this pacemaker, et cetera. Um, but it was good, you know, it was good training. The Scotsman was a good international newspaper at the time. I was around very, very talented journalists. Um, and I was able to get a few features, et cetera, that allowed me to continue, as I say, to build my portfolio. Uh, and then when a position came available in the London office of time, I had, you know, something substantial to apply with. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's how I ended up at time. Okay. So what, what was your beat with time? What did you write about? Um, so I got, I got to write about, I got to write about everything. I mean, it was such a cool job, Judd, because, you know, I was essentially, I was in London and, you know, I, my beat was essentially anything I found interesting that I could pitch to uh, the New York 
um, office and what would capture their interest. Uh, so I got to do some golf stuff, some tennis stuff. I went to two Wimbledon finals, including the like famous Federer Nadal final. In 08? Yeah, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. 08, yeah. The that's one that, that lasted seven hours. Yeah, that was amazing. I remember yeah, yeah. yeah. I was there. I was in row M. Oh, cool. I wrote a piece called The View from row M about that. Um, and, uh, but then, you know, I also got to do quirky stories. Like we had this feature postcard from London. So I got to do stories about how homeless people were disguising themselves as passengers at Heathrow. So they had a safe place to stay. That was like a, hmm. a cool story. I got to go to CERN, um, uh, to write about the hunt for the Higgs boson particle. And so, uh, it was really kind of like wide ranging beat. And that's, what's so cool. That's what's so alluring about journalism is you feel like you're getting, um, paid to be getting education. And the access that you get is incredible, right? So, you know, you can pick up the phone as a reporter at Time Magazine and get heads of state and CEOs and sports figures, like, you know, giving you their time. Um, it's just an incredible, incredible experience. Yeah. So what's your take on the state of, well, I know print media is, um, let's call it struggling. Is that the best way to put it? Yeah. But uh, just general media, what, what's your take on where we're headed and where we are? Um. Yeah, I, I I I don't think I have anything to add other than you know, uh, good good content seems to be finding its audiences, you know, um, and so you know you you have this fragmentation, but now you know you can make a good living now doing golf content, whereas before you'd have to go sort of be a reporter at Sports Illustrated, maybe cover you do golf and a few feature about like a, a speed walker or something right and now now you can just focus on golf so it's becoming sort of sp specialized um uh but for kind of a generalist like me it's it's just it's it's a hard it's a hard career now um, yeah. uh, there's just few places kind of that to, to to find the funding that you need to actually do good journalism so yeah is it is it hard to as a journalist and th this may have been learning on a job but I think about, you know, our idea of, you know, kind of the Walter Cronkites of the world or the the Woodward and Bernstein types that are able to write articles or, or, or report on news that people consider news versus uh, what people consider opinion. Because I think now it's hard for people to separate the two. Uh, and I'm not talking about journalists. I think it's hard for consumers to separate the two. And I mean, I see that now with distrust of on both sides of the media, um, people say, well, I don't, I'm not gonna listen to that guy because he is a shill for this side. And, and I'm not gonna listen to that guy because he's a shill for the other side or whatever the case may be. Whereas they may just be reporting on the news. And so I, I wonder, um, and, and the consumers are not always incorrect. I think there is that, but I just, I wonder how hard that is when you're covering something, it's easy to maybe not easy, but it's it's easy to, to find the news in a Wimbledon match like 08 because it's kind of, um, you're reporting on what you saw, right? But when you're reporting on to report the news, when your job is to report the news and not your opinion, how do you how do you find that line? Because I think that there's always going to be you got to make it human, right? You can't just report facts. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I'm glad in a way. I'm relieved that I don't have to report in the current environment with so much is politicized. Um, you know, in today's environment, there'd be, you know, there'd be this sort of like, it just seems like there's so many landmines now. To, um, I mean, I think that, you know, for kids, etc. Um, you know, I, I, I sort of, I, I, I think that this idea of like news literacy, right, is, is going to be, um, is, is very important, uh, you know, being able to kind of differentiate, you know, propaganda from actual news, opinion from actual news. 
Uh, I think that's going to get harder to do, especially now there's going to be so much content flooding from these, you know, large language model AI bots that can write so well, um, can write better than many journalists I work with. Um, so, you know, how you're going to kind of pick your way through an internet just full of crap is going to be one of the central challenges, I think, for like the next generation. Yeah, I remember when we were in college, I, I wrote a paper for a politics course that was um, about kind of the dangers of consolidation of media sources. And that's what everybody was worried about at the time. And now it's almost to me, I get, there's still some of that, but I think there's also the opposite problem of that, where you have kind of this, everybody, I mean, we have a podcast and we have, and there's Twitter and there's all these different quote unquote news sources that, um, uh, you know, people of our parents' generation and maybe people of our generation um, are trained just innately to trust the news. And if they read it, they tend to trust it. it my, my son does not because um, he, he's grown up in a generation of where everybody just throws whatever they have online and they kind of know they have a little bit more of that news literacy probably. But I, I just wonder um, if that's part of the issue that people don't know what to trust and, and we, we're kind of in this and this weird model of uh, everybody's a news reporter now. Yeah. And, you know, I think that like the consumer has basically showed that they don't want bundled content, right? They don't, they want to go find, they want to go find their vertical. So like they, they want to learn everything there is about cars or watches or golf or uh, local politics in district four or whatever it might be. Right. Um, but what that means, I, you know, what's lost is, you know, I mentioned that a feature at Sports Illustrated about a speedwalker, like there's a famous feature about a speedwalker that's one of the great kind of sports stories. And what's lost is that sort of like sense of discovery that great journalism um, can bring to people and the, the widening circle of empathy it, it sort of brings with it when you kind of read something where you're like, I had no idea I'd be interested in sports and speedwalking. And now I can't, I don't think it's, I don't think I've read anything more interesting this year. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that's, that's a shame. That's what's kind of lost when you let people sort of choose their own diet, really. Yeah, I think as we, you know, the dangers of the AI world and dangers of algorithms are that we continue to get more and more siloed. And it's interesting to me that, you know, when when Facebook and some of these social media outlets came out, the idea was to connect us all. And really, what it's done is kind of isolate us all um, because you're able to kind of parse out what you don't want to read. And it's it's a little bit like I said earlier about you growing up in New York. Um, now we all grew up in small, some ranch somewhere, uh, and I'm talking about kind of in a virtual world where you only have to talk to the people you want to talk to, but in, but we used to grow up in a world like New York where you can walk down the street and you're going to see this guy and this guy and this mm -hmm. guy that all disagree on different mm -hmm. things, but you, you also understand them all as different human beings rather than that's the guy, that's my enemy down the road that I don't ever talk to, you know, so. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things I like. I live in the West now, you know, I live in Colorado um, and, you know, we're, I live in one of the few kind of purple districts left and I actually really value that, you know, I get this diversity of opinion. And, yeah. You know, so. Yeah. That's why I, I married a woman that doesn't agree with me on anything and that makes it, that makes it more fun. <laughs> so. like me too. I don't know how that works. Out. Yeah, yeah. It can't be that we're wrong. I, I tell you that. So, well, um, so you go from Time Magazine and then and then that I think that's what you're referring to. That's kind of when the bottom kind of dropped out a little bit on your on your journalism career. So what was the 
the uh, reinvigoration of of what you wanted to do from there and kind of how you take your journalism career to a new new level or new path yeah i mean so i i'm kind of the opposite of entrepreneurially minded i've always sort of attached myself to kind of like uh i've always been credentialed right so i've always like worked been to a university worked to for a prestigious outlet i'm much more comfortable with that so when when i knew that the writing was on the wall at time they were shuttering all the foreign bureau etc um, I needed a perch, uh, and so I was thrilled when I got a research position. I got funding to do, co- to go f- focus on nonproliferation issues at the project on managing the atom at the Harvard Kennedy School. I had done some stuff in Europe around uh, nonproliferation and arms control, so um, that that was kind of their feeling was they had a lot of wonks on the staff of this research group, um, but they wanted someone who could like spin stories and, and tell tell stories about. Um, that would really kind of bring this issue to life. Uh, so um, I went to the Kennedy School and I spent two years there, um, uh, you know, kind of became a patron saint of a lost cause. You know, um, there was some excitement at the time because Obama had given these speeches in Europe and Prague specifically uh, with soaring rhetoric about renewing the vision of a world free of nuclear weapons. He won he won a Nobel Peace Prize based basically on the back of these speeches. Um, but then, you know, kind of lost momentum. He decided to focus on healthcare and and um, didn't want to fight uh, the the battle with John Kyle of Arizona and other Republicans who were staunchly pro, who thought that nuclear weapons made the world safer. Um, and so that that just basically there there ended up being a very narrow sliver of, of of area where I could work, and that that turned out to be nuclear security, which is an area where. Republicans and Democrats can agree because no one wants Al Qaeda to have a bomb, mm-hmm. um, and so that's that's what I worked that's what I worked on, and I went to Kazakhstan to Semipalatinsk, which was the former secret Soviet city where the Russians uh, developed and tested their nuclear weapons. There used to be a million people there. They had two direct flights a day from Moscow. Um, uh, it was a secret city. I'm sure the U.S. had spy planes looking at it, but no one was allowed. To, it was like basically the Manhattan Project in Los Alamos in 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 the steps of Kazakhstan. And then when the Soviet Union fell, they basically all just left. Um, just like, okay, boys, grab your hats, we're going home. And they left hundreds of kilograms of weapons usable plutonium, intact nuclear weapons, all this stuff in the testing tunnels where they were doing the underground testing. And so the U- secretly the US uh, and the, the fall of the Cold War um, funded this multi-million dollar effort to basically like secure all of this weapons usable material. Um, and so I went and and got to basically scramble around the steps of Kazakhstan oh. with some money from Sam Nunn's foundation. Sam Nunn, the senator from mm-hmm. Georgia, who was also a member of Augusta. Um, so I, I wrote to him a letter after the project was complete, telling him that you know I had basically been irradiated in, in service of his of his mission. So I at least deserved around around Augusta. And I got a very nice email back from his assistant that just said, "Nice try." <laughs> uh, but anyway, yeah. So so I, I uh, that I did that for two years. That should um, tell you how hard it is to get on Augusta, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like uh, basically gonna have a jellyfish for a baby. I still can't get around. <laughs> Augusta. Um, but uh, yeah, I did that for two years and then um, uh, met my now wife, uh, who was a student at the time and kind of realized like, you know, living in Boston, I needed to go make money. So um, I, 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 I just basically became a mercenary. I was like, who will pay me the most? Um, I ended up at a management consultancy, which was not a good fit for me. Um, educational nonetheless. And then, you know, my old boss at Time Magazine was the editor-in-chief um, at Harvard Business Review. And I basically started pestering him to let me come sharpen his pencils or do whatever I need to do to get on staff there. Because HBR is sort of uniquely positioned. We've, uh, You know, the magazine's always 
relied on income from subscribers as opposed to advertisers. Mm-hmm. So the, the the people who read HBR actually pay for it. And that's a nice place to be. Yeah. Um, so it's much more stable, apart from the fact that it's a nonprofit, doesn't have Wall Street or private equity owners or anything like that. Um, it's got the school, although they're quite rapacious capitalists themselves. But um, uh, it's just a much more stable environment. And also, I love it because you know, I feel like I know our readers now, you know, I feel like the people who read Harvard Business Review, they really value the content, they read it to get ahead in their career. And um, yeah, they really like it. So, so I've ended up in a good spot, I can work remotely, I live in Colorado, um, in the mountains, it's beautiful. Um, uh, I can spend six weeks a year at the house in Scotland, often just kind of working from there. So um, uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's worked out really well. That's great. I still consider, I mean, I naively still consider you a journalist just because I think you're still covering the world, uh, but probably just from a different platform. Um, but it's, it's how you've had to adapt based on how the, the realities of the world, like your, your profession are. So now what I also know about you is I, I guess I wasn't, we weren't, um, probably as, um, closely in contact on the first instance, but we were on the second one of your two, um, near-death experiences um one being well both being mother nature i guess but just in different ways so why don't you kind of walk us through the first one which is the earthquake yeah so so i was i was a you know i was a very wimpy reporter at time i mean i i i was a journalist through you know both afghanistan and iraq um at time and the scotsman and i managed to you know, weasel my way out of every foreign assignment in, in war zones possible. So you can uh, run for president. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. I just kind of felt that that's not where my skills lay, <laughs> but you know, so I was in Chile the, the, working on a piece about an effort by the U S government to repatriate nuclear materials. So this is an example of how in my journalism days, I was kind of covering these issues already. So Chile during this seventies uh, and eighties under Pinochet were, was given weapons usable uh, uranium as part of his Atoms for Peace program. Anyway, the U.S. government was trying to get it back because you don't want, you know, highly enriched uranium hanging around a research reactor. And mm-hmm. uh, so anyway, I was down there and kind of minding my own business. And then this 8.8 earthquake hit while I was down there. Um, one of the most powerful earthquakes uh, in recorded history. Yeah. Um, and uh, it totally rattled me. Um, uh, and how, how old were you when that happened? So I was... Um, 30, okay. 31. Um, and you know, I, for the for people who have been in a large earthquake, you kind of think of like shaking, but it's not shaking. Like the ground, like shifts, like six, seven, eight feet in each direction. Um, and then you have multiple aftershocks that are themselves enormous earthquakes, 6.7, 6.5 aftershocks after the, after the initial thing. Um, uh, you know, um, it was so, it was so powerful that it moved the city of Concepcion 10 feet. Wow. <laughs> All the maps had to be redone. That's incredible. Yeah. It moved enough land mass that it subtly, but perceptibly shifted the earth on its axis. I mean, it's really hard to get your head around these kind of cosmic things when you're living through them, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I was, I, 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 to my credit, having, taken a hostile environment training course uh, in, that my employers futilely thought would get me to go to Iraq or Afghanistan. I, I, I sprung to action and I, I was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to cover this story. I'm going to cover the crap out of it. Um, and that's what good journalists do. And I knew that's what I had to do. So um, the, the trick was to get to Santiago is relatively unscathed where I was. So the trick was to get to Concepcion where the um, epicenter was. And so I went to the um, airfield where they were running air, aid flights and on my way to the um, airfield, uh, 
um, I realized I hadn't, I didn't bring enough pencils or pens. Now there's not going to be a stationary store open in the middle of an epicenter of an earthquake. So I, I went back to the hotel, I turned, told the driver to turn around and go back to the, the hotel. Um, and, uh, found out that in the interim, um, while, while I was re going back to the hotel, um, one of the aid planes had crashed and everyone had died. Um, so, uh, I don't know if I would have been for sure on that aircraft, um, uh, but it's plausible. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I, um, yeah, I, I just, I just remember my world being rocked. Um, uh, and, um, I have kind of a, I, I've sort of an allegory that my mother told me, um, that, uh, you know, it, will you indulge me with a quick, absolutely. Okay. So it's called the appointment in Samara. Mm -hmm. um, so the servant goes running into his master's in his master's chamber in Baghdad it says you must help me master today I was in the market and I saw death among the stalls and death he jostled me and the master says well you're my most prized servant we must take care of you I'll, I'll send you in my swiftest carriage to my summer palace in Samara you must leave immediately so uh, they bundle him up and they send him off to Samara and then the master goes to the market that afternoon and sure enough he sees death among the stalls and he goes up to death and he says, why did you jostle my servant today? And he says, well, I was surprised to see in Baghdad today, a man with whom I have an appointment tomorrow in Samara. Mm. Wow. <laughs> and it just, that, that, that allegory told me everything that I kind of needed to know about, about death, which is that often you, you can try and keep yourself safe. You can uh, do whatever, whatever you can, but often you're, you know, you're not going to see it coming. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and that doesn't mean you live recklessly. You try and stash the odds in your favor, but, um, uh, you can't prevent it. That's for sure. Right. So, uh, that was, that was kind of my first, my first brush, um, brush with mortality and with death. And I, that, that started lifting a huge weight on my shoulders. You know, I had, um, one of the reasons why I'd been drawn to literature in college is because I was kind of obsessed with the idea of like mortality and finitude. Um, mm -hmm. and that's a rich topic for poets and authors. And so that was kind of an avenue for me to explore a lot of these issues, my favorite book was called Being Dead by Jim Crace. Um, mm. uh, and um, that started to kind of lift the weight off my shoulders. And then um, when I had my second uh, kind of closer experience um, with death, you know, I now tell people that I'm like that guy in the Western that says, you know, I've made my peace with death. You know, I've mm -hmm. looked him in the eye and, and you know, we're okay. And um, and that's been the gift of these experiences. Uh, so, Yeah, you know, um, and we'll get into the second one in a second, but I always think about... Um, you know, I, I tell my wife all the time, um, there's a song that we both love and it's, it's probably one of our, you know, if you have like a song, it's one of our songs and it's called if we were vampires. Right. And it's, and it's about if, a, um, you know, if you, um, it's not, you know, it, there's, there's this whole thing about, you know, the reason why you love somebody is not because of the way she looks or the way she holds you or the way she does this It's because you know that there's an end to this. Right. And, and, and the time running out of that is the gift of everything. Um, and that's why you hold her hand. That's why you tell her you love her and that kind of thing. So I, I do think as hard as those experiences are, and, and, you know, I, I've, I haven't faced them like you have, but I have certainly faced friends dying at an early age and it's, it's really hard, but in, in some ways, I don't want to say this in a bad way, but in some ways it's such a, a blessing to, to, to know that, things that matter matter for a reason right and and um and it's because of because you know it doesn't last forever so i i um 
I, I do think that you have, it's funny how you run into that and it gives you clarity and you, and you're not scared anymore. Right. Because you know that like, um, uh, the, the meaning of all this is probably in what we're doing right now, which is living right. Rather than, and I don't mean this to turn religious, but I think that too often people focus on what happens afterwards and they need to focus on what's happening right now. Cause that, that's what we can control. So I think that's beautifully said, Judd. I mean, for me, the, the lasting effect was the lifting of mortal fear. Um, but certainly, you know, when I came back from Chile, there was this like incredible period, right? Where I could like taste the sunshine. Mm -hmm. I was like, everything is beautiful. Like, yeah. It's like a dewdrop. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, that, you know, it's very difficult to live continuously like that. Um, but I do think it's a good exercise. So the, the writer, Rachel, Rachel Carlson, she's a naturalist. She has this exercise where she goes for walks she she used to go for walks and she'd say you know what if i was seeing this for the first time and what was the, what if this was the last time i would see this and suddenly everything becomes beautiful yeah um, well it's 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 interesting kind of to loop it back to what you said about golf earlier it's like we're living life like through a child's eyes just like you said sometimes it's great to watch kids play golf because they don't know any different and like i, I one of the one of the joys of of having kids is watching kind of them experience things that we take for granted for the first time. And, you know, when we go to the wherever and get, and they see a, you know, a, a like we went um, to the beach one time and they saw like a, you know, a big um, pelican go down and get the fish. And my daughter thought that was the coolest thing she's ever seen in her life, you know? And, and we probably all have seen that, you know, certainly hundreds of times or however, it depending on where you live, but um, to be able to watch that through their eyes. And I do think it kind of gives you, because you know that um um because you've seen it how it ends right it's almost you know you talked about having kind of the two lives because you've seen how it ends you kind of appreciate um it gives you that innocence back or the innocence of a child or you're kind of seeing things anew i guess definitely yeah definitely yeah so um so the the second time I feel like we're doing like a series, but uh, the the second time I remember um, Evan's misadventures. <laughs> well, I, none of these are your fault, I, you know. So um, Evan and I had played in a um, ball tournament. Um, we, we always playing the four ball together, and we, and we always talk and kind of commiserate on different rounds of golf and and how we're not as good as we thought we were, and maybe better than we thought we were. Who knows? But um, he but he called me one time, and you and I remember you calling me. And you were going to play in a USAM qualifier in Albuquerque. And you called me and said, I've been sick. It was during, you know, kind of on the heels of COVID. And I don't know if I should responsibly play. And I kind of talked you into, hey, I think you should go out there and give it a go. You know, uh, you're outside. Just go enjoy your time. And so that was probably on a, I don't know what day that was, maybe a Tuesday or Wednesday when you had that qualifier. And I remember you um, called me on Friday. And so I, I, I knew that you, you said you played well, you played okay. The first 18 and the second 18, you felt a little bit better, but you didn't make the, make it, which is not important here. But, um, you called me on Friday and, and, and you said, I think I need you to do a will for me, which I'd never, I, I do that all the time with my job, but with my legal job, but, um, I, I don't think I'd ever had a 41 year old man call me and say, I need you to do a will for me right now. It's an emergency. Right. And he's in Albuquerque hospital. And so uh, kind of walk us through kind of 
I know the story, but nobody else does. So to walk us through kind of what 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 happened and what led to that call and what happened after that. Right. Call. So on the first hole, I hit this little butter cut. After that. No, I'm just kidding. That's uh, such a golfer answer, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Take it right. Although I do want to say that, like, I, I I was so looking forward to being on this podcast because I could hijack it and basically tell people that. Um, so it turned out that I had falciparum malaria, which is um, the most deadly form of malaria. And for those who don't have any acquired immunity to it from living in tropical areas can kill you really quickly. Um, and I had no travel history uh, to the tropics in recent um, weeks or months. There are some, some species of the parasite that can remain dormant in your system. Falciparum is not considered one of them, although... Um, Partly on the back of my case, uh, some of the team at Johns Hopkins is now um, reevaluating that received wisdom that maybe there are reservoirs in the spleen or the bone marrow where falciparum parasites can actually remain dormant. Because I had been in East Africa and Zanzibar and Tanzania specifically uh, five years before I got sick. So it's possible I got I got bit by a mosquito then. Um, it's also possible I've been at Heathrow Airport, a major international airport, 10 days prior, which kind of lines up with the incubation period. So it's possible that a mosquito kind of flew in. Um, on a flight from Africa that hadn't been fumigated and bit me in Heathrow Airport without me realizing and infected me that way. Um, but it was, but it was like, it was the appointment in Samara. Like you do not anticipate getting bit by a mosquito at Heathrow Airport with deadly malaria, right? So, um, but all that is a preamble to say I shot 73 in the second round. <laughs> yes. Uh, which is the sports story of the century. Yeah. Didn't get the appreciation that it deserved. I mean, Tiger won at Corey with like, a little chipped bone and owie knee. Yeah. I had a blood parasite eating my brain and spleen and liver and shot 73. So I really think that like we need, you know, I've been yeah. trying to rouse Sports I, Illustrated on this for months. Well, when I think about Mr. Hogan's car wreck in 1949 <laughs> and when the U.S. opened 16 months later, it's very, it's very pretty much the same thing. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I got I got I got very, very sick and I, I was dying. Um uh, and I was, you know, I, I, I spoke with um, the head of the World Health Organization's malarial initiative in this. So the CDC actually has a huge malaria team. The CDC started as the Department of Malaria Control during the war, which I didn't realize. So it still has a big malaria team. And I, I talked to the head of the malaria unit and, you know, he says that um, he says he thinks I had a number, just a matter of hours if I hadn't been given treatment. Um, there are still a lot of people that die of malaria in the U.S., even when they know that they've been in tropical uh, areas um, because U.S. doctors don't appreciate how quickly patients can crash. And, and, and I was crashing. Um, mm -hmm. I was I had signs of cerebral malaria and I, I, I was kind of entering like into the early stages of a coma. And, you know, that's that's usually kind of lights out when that happens with falciparum. So um, it, it was really, really scary. Uh um, uh, especially for my wife, I don't have a lot of memory of like the last couple of days, uh, of the illness. Um, but, um, you know, I was, uh, I was saved. Um, <laughs> I don't like to use this word cause he's, he, you know, he's a man. Um, but you know, I was saved by an angel. I, I, um, I had a nurse, uh, a, just, a, just a normal nurse, not like a nurse practitioner or anything like that. Um, who was, uh, from Ethiopia and had served essentially as like a doctor in medical clinics in the Horn of Africa. And, um, you know, with my wife, uh, he sort of recognized the, the the clinical presentation. I had been misdiagnosed as having this other kind of tick-borne parasite. They knew I had a blood parasite, but they had ruled out malaria because of the travel history. And one of the things about the medical profession is that when you take something off the shelves <laughs> of differential diagnoses, it's really hard to get it back on the shelf. Um, so everyone had kind of ruled out malaria. And anyway, this this guy with my wife, um, 
you know, single, he stayed late on his shift uh, to find an infectious disease doctor and kind of jawbone him and, and, and make the case that I needed to get treated for malaria. And thank God he found an infectious disease doctor who ha himself had experience with malaria. And, um, you know, they got me on the right drugs uh, and, you know, it's eminently treatable. Um, so, so yeah, so I, um, uh, that's, that, that was very dangerous. And, 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 um, uh, and, I, and after that, um, the lasting effect has been uh, that, you know, I'm, I'm at peace with it, um, which is a wonderful gift <laughs> to be free of the, of mortal fear. Yes. And I, I, I'm, I'm just from my perspective, selfish perspective, I'm, I'm glad that you, you, you made it through. I, I know that that Friday night, um, and it was like in the middle of July, I remember it was like July 9th or so, cause right after July 4th, I feel like when you called me and told me about the will and I kind of thought in you, at one point you said, they think I had the bubonic plague. And I remember making the joke because that's what I'm prone to do. Are you calling me from the Middle Ages? What's happening here? And I don't remember this. Okay, well, it's gold. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I should have recorded it. But um, anyway, and then and then um, and I went to bed that night, and um, you you were going to call me back with your with your stuff, you know, kind of names and stuff for Will, and and that's one that I don't want to. I don't want to do right. It could be, I'm happy to do it when everybody's healthy, but when they're on their deathbed, it's not fun to do. Um, but I talked to your wife on Saturday and then, and then we didn't really hear anything for two days. And I remember going to bed on Sunday night and telling my wife, like, I, I, I guess, yeah, I don't know if he made it or not. And when I, when I talked to you on Tuesday and you know, the, once you were diagnosed properly, it seemed like the turnaround was almost immediate just because it was, treatable and and they they had you right but i remember that that tuesday was one of the best days of my life just knowing that that you you'd made it through and and because it's it's scary to know that that um you know that that is a um um something that that it could happen to but for any of it but for the grace of god i guess that that um it could happen to any of us but it's when it's ripped away i think it's one thing if you know if you're if you're, you know, as I've told people before, if you if you're like Mr. Hogan, you're hit by a Greyhound bus, it's sad, it's tragic, but people get hit by a bus all the time. Um, then now they don't come back and win a U.S. Open in 16 months, but it's just it, it, for some reason it hits you harder when it's something that it's unexplainable, mm -hmm. um, and that was unexplainable. But I I just I think about it all the time and I I love one of my favorite stories is how you've become close to your as you say your angel and Albuquerque and his family just because it just just shows that like you never know where they're coming from yeah and the senator from New Mexico sent him a letter with an American flag that had flown at the Capitol saying you know I'm the son of an immigrant myself and I appreciate oh. you know your unique contribution I, I mean you know you want like a Mr Smith goes to Washington mo moment to to make you feel good about actually what's possible in our pol political environment yeah uh, that was an incredible letter um, there, there's an interesting kind of coda or postscript to the story which you were involved in which is that you know I guess a year later or two years later we went back for you know we've been trying to qualify for the floorball together and we yeah. went back and it was in Albuquerque in the yep. same city where I'd gotten sick and we we had a good one right like we you know we played well buried all the fives rolled mm -hmm. a few in and we had like a you know I I had a putt on eighteen you know maybe eight feet or something like that mm -hmm. and uh, to to either play off maybe or something yeah. like that yeah. and um, you know I had I had I had 
personalize my golf ball with this phrase amor fati love of fate yep. like you have to love whatever kind of comes your way and i was like well this this is my fate mm -hmm. i am going to roll in this eight footer right and we're going to the the four ball together you know my best my best golf and pal and from years back and in the same city i became ill mm -hmm. and uh, you know let's just say that my caddy misread it because i i missed it by two cups right you know but i remember thinking to myself like the the strings were swelling in my head you know i jim nance's voice saying like the putt of a lifetime yeah you know? <laughs> and i completely shanked this putt and uh you know but but what was so great about it obviously of course always the lesson is that it's about the relationships and the friendships and the fact that we got to compete together and we were in the mix um and then it gave us an excuse to kind of like have a night together at a hotel just like talking about family and life yeah. Um, that was that was actually the gift. So we were we were winners in the end, even though we we didn't get the U.S. Open like Hogan. <laughs> we, we missed our four ball qualifier. We did, and, and and in fairness, you're being nice because probably um, if I'd played better, you wouldn't have had to make that eight footer. Oh come on! So. I mean, you can't say that. We're four ball partners. If I had played better, I wouldn't have had to make eight footers. Yeah. Well, I I, um, I, I think uh, you, you know your stories. I mean, it's fascinating. It's quite a life you've led already, and and we're hoping there's a lot more, a uh, lot more to it. But um, we appreciate you coming in. Uh, I certainly appreciate your support of Mr. Hogan over in Scotland and here, and and we hope that someday we're going to do an event over at Carnoustie or over at Panmure, and we're going to have you be our honorary chairman for that because we'd love to have you involved that way. Sounds but, great to me. But um, thanks for coming in, and let's uh, let's go hit balls and try to get better. Love it. That's right. good. Thank you.